0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, And Eric, we have been looking back in the absence of any live boxing uh, at some classic fights lately. We'll be doing that again later on in this podcast. But here's an interesting thing. I came across the punch stats recently for one classic, and I'm actually kind of amazed looking at the the stats that we haven't picked it yet to look at. Um, It was a heavyweight title fight. I'm going to see if you can guess the participants just from those punch stats. So it opened up with, let's call him Fighter A, the challenger, the former champ, uh, landing uh, an entirely believable 32 punches in the first minutes of the first round to zero from Fighter B who's the mm. defending champion. You would think in that situation, right, that's not going to last, right? right? But after that, shortly after that opening barrage, Fighter A decides that the key to success is to goad Fighter B into hitting him as much as possible. Uh, fighter B obliges with a sequence of 92 unanswered blows. 92. Okay. But uh, this extreme rope dope does actually work. Fighter A recovers to finish with a sequence of seventy-six punches landed from eighty-two thrown, entirely believable. Forty of forty-five power shots, nineteen of twenty jabs, and seventeen of seventeen body shots to score a third-round knockout. Guess those fighters.
2: Whew. Wow,
1: those are those are some crazy stats. Uh,
2: let me let me go process of elimination. Um, sure. It, it's not a John Ruiz fight. Right, correct, correct. Uh it's not Klitschko or Bragimov. Also correct. Uh you said it was it was heavyweight, so that that rules out uh, Bernard Hopkins versus Murad Hakar. Uh so let's see. Guess that leaves uh carry the one. Uh, must be uh Balboa Lang
1: 2. Did I get it? You are correct, sir. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I guess I'm a week or two late to this, but um, our friend Dan Canobio at CompuBox uh, did the full treatment of Rocky Balboa's fight. It makes for predictably awesome reading. (laughs) Yeah. Especially the way that Dan writes them up. Um, And I'll tell you what, man, look, I I don't want to make light of the situation, but awful as the circumstances that required it have been, the lockdown gave us this. And, And for that alone, I shall be very grateful. It's almost enough. To prompt me to sit down and actually watch all the Rocky movies, because um, I have to make a confession here. I've kept quiet in the past when you've talked about all the Rocky movies, because I feel like I'm, I'm making a bit of an embarrassing uh, admission here. Um, I have owned I have not seen them all. Hmm. I have only seen one, two, parts of four, and Creed. Huh. So does this mean I'm like exiled from the boxing community forever, or am I in fact fortunate? to have only seen those
2: yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna say you're not exiled because you you've mostly done a good job of of seeing the good ones and skipping the bad ones Uh, i'd say the original is the only truly great rocky movie uh rocky 2 and creed are both solid and i enjoyed creed i must say yeah it's it's a good movie Um, and maybe a tad overrated in my view Mm. but still still yeah pretty good um it's around in it Well, that does that does pump it up a notch. I I should I should maybe reevaluate based on that. Um, But and then you said you saw parts of Rocky four. That is the best of the cartoonish ones. Um, Meanwhile, Rocky three is completely overrated. Yeah, that's right. Max Kellerman. Come at me, bro. (laughs) He says Rocky three is his favorite. And that's just absurd. It's terrible. Um, Rocky (laughs) five. Stinks, unanimously agreed upon as the worst of the movies. And uh, I thought Creed two was atrocious. Some people didn't hate it, but I thought it was just horrendous. Uh, yeah, I didn't
1: see it yet. No. Um, okay.
2: Yeah. So the only one you haven't seen that I kind of like was the first half of Rocky Balboa. It, it was half of a good movie. and then that the was second... six, right? Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. The one with Antonio Tarver. Right. Um, so, yeah, the first half is really good and serious and raw and kind of... Has the feel to an extent of the original Rocky, and then he decides to make a comeback at his advanced age, and the second half of the movie was the stupidest shit you've ever seen. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, as long as we're talking movies uh, and what you have and haven't seen, uh, let's get to our weekly segment that I like to call What You're Watching. So, Kieran, what you're watching? It's funny,
1: uh, very little, actually. I don't know how the week seems to have gotten away from me a little bit. Um, I, I haven't watched much shit's creek although i am into season two now um so so that's good uh i have uh, i did just this morning before we record uh basically as soon as it was posted i did watch the tiger king follow-up show okay (laughs) um i've also kept my sunday night appointment viewing as i may be the last person on earth to still be enjoying both homeland and westworld at this point um (laughs) But the other, but the thing that I am watching uh, is the final season of Brockmire, which I followed from episode one. Do you know that show? Are you uh, familiar with it at all? I know it, and I watch it.
2: And oh, you do? Yes, I, I've watched it from the start, and I've generally liked it, not quite loved it to the extent some do. I'm really not actually enjoying this final season at all, but uh, I don't know if you feel differently.
1: Yeah, so I, I enjoyed season one. Uh, season two, I was like, uh, am I going to stick with this? Um, I thought season three picked up quite a bit. I liked the swerve when he got sober. And I'm actually quite enjoying the fact that I think what I'm enjoying about this season, and for those who don't know, it's about um, Hank Azaria stars as Jim Brockmeyer, who is just kind of a, at least when we first meet him, uh, just a waste of a human being, who's also a baseball announcer. In the first couple of seasons, he's just perpetually drunk. Right. Um, and then he opens up the, the conceit of season four is that we leap ahead into the 2030s. And what I find quite amusing are the little well in hindsight jokes quote unquote about how basically the united states has descended into a dystopia um <laughs> uh, that there appears to be just society is broken down as a result of climate change and, and other things and you know you have tv commercials that uh, uh offer up euthanasia as an alternative to dying of super cancer it all feels very prescient yeah. um and, and, and you know as brock meyer observes i'm watching that commercial i think Dark times! Dark, dark, dark times! <laughs> That's a pretty good um, Brockmire impression. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you. So I quite enjoy it, and and so I'm glad it's only going to be this season, but it's just not working for you? Is the, the jump forward in time just not happening, or...? Yeah, it's kind of the, the extra added level of weirdness this season
2: is not... Quite doing it for me, although I did I did like the way that the last episode ended, which I won't go into any details on. But it was uh, you know with the uh, the romantic relationship that's mm-hmm. sort of uh, at the center of it. They did a, a sort of a fun ending, I thought. So it's one of those things where this happens a lot with me. If a show is in its final season and I'm losing interest, I will stick it out till the end, knowing I that did. it's the final season. So that's that's where
1: I am with this. Dude, I watched all of True Detective season two. That's how <laughs> that's how hard it is to shake me once i've decided i like something <laughs> there you go <laughs> anyway what about you what are you watching
2: um so still no tv show binging here uh, although i did watch a couple of series finales that aired this week um Poop's Creek, uh, as we call it in my household, uh, <laughs> reached reached its actual ending this week. I'm not sure okay. if you were aware of that. Uh, uh, no spoilers, of course, but I thought that was a good ending. And uh, Modern Family, which uh, I watched all the way until the yeah. end. Yeah, I'm, I'm the one. Uh, I, uh, yeah,
1: I, I, I did bail on that. I did bail on Modern
2: Family. Okay, yes. and you didn't jump back aboard to just watch the finale or something?
1: I started to, and then I just thought, oh, gosh, this really has gone downhill. And so <laughs> I actually abandoned the finale. I mean, I loved the first, what, six, seven seasons. and right. then Yeah.
2: Yeah, I generally still enjoyed the show in its later years, even though it clearly wasn't what it once was. But I thought the finale itself was very flat. Uh, It really didn't work. So uh, but on top of those shows, the full family watched a couple of movies as we continue to hit the classics of my youth. Uh, First, we watched Big, which was uh, yeah, better. I would even say maybe much better than I remembered it. Uh, Really a great movie, Um, although I can't believe it was rated PG. Uh, the scene where he's fully feeling Elizabeth Perkins' boobs when she's in a bra, uh, a lot more awkward to watch with the kids than a lot of stuff we've seen that made other movies PG-13 or even R. Uh, so I don't know how they got away with PG on that one, um, but we loved it. And then uh, and then we watched a movie I'd actually never seen before, uh, in part because I generally don't enjoy Robin Williams' comedy, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, have you I've seen never that? seen it either. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. I some, Somehow I avoided that all these years, but it's pretty solid, and the kids loved it. They really liked that one. There were a few gender transition-related jokes that wouldn't fly today, uh, but uh, definitely a, a fun movie. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and uh, and by the way, last week we mentioned uh, on the podcast the Netflix series on Carlos Monzón, creatively titled Monzón. Uh, Kieran and I have decided to go ahead and watch and discuss the series on the pod. We'll go two episodes a week for five weeks, unless it sucks, in which case we reserve the right to bail after a week or two. Exactly. Uh, but but for now, uh, next week we will be discussing, presumably with full spoilers. Episodes one and two. So uh, if any of you out there want to watch along with us, uh, go right ahead. If you don't want to, that's
1: okay too. The conversations should be brief, uh, just a a few minutes each week. Indeed. Uh, But that is next week. Uh, This week on the podcast, we will be looking back at the historic May 7th, 1994 Showtime pay-per-view card known as Revenge, the Rematches. And we will be joined by Hall of Famer Steve Farhood for that conversation. Uh, We will also be discussing the biggest news in the boxing world this week, uh, a fair bit of which is, as per usual, awful. Um, But we have actually found a few possibly uplifting nuggets to include, so uh, that's unusual <laughs> um but first let's bring on a couple of guests COVID-19 news has taken up a fair bit of the podcast over the last few weeks we've chatted with Stephen Espinoza of Showtime about how this is all impacting the broadcasting side of the business with Stephen Bredman Edwards about how boxers could and should be training in isolation uh we haven't yet spoken with a boxer who has contracted the virus. But coming up, we will be talking with heavyweight contender Otto Valin, who has not been tested but has shown some of the most definitive symptoms. But first, let's bring in his promoter, a man whose fighters have seen a great deal lately on Showtime and especially on Showbox, a former 140-pound contender and the president of Salida Promotions, Dimitri Salida. Uh, Dimitri, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, Dimitri, first of all, the question we ask all our guests right now, how are you? How is your family? Are you all well?
3: Everybody is as well as they could be under the given circumstances. I have two little girls, so um, you know, we're doing some homeschooling, spending some time exercising together and uh, talking about life. But overall, and they're learning the boxing business faster. <laughs> Than I
1: anticipated.
3: <laughs> uh, but all, all in all, as well, under the
1: given circumstances. Good,
2: good. Yeah, certainly family comes first, of course, but, uh, but business is, is important also. And obviously, having a shutdown like this hits people hard across the industry because no events means no payment for fighters, trainers, managers, event staff, cornermen, and, and people like yourself. What are you hearing from your fighters and from others in the business about how this is affecting them financially?
3: Well, you know, we have fighters from all over the world. So, uh, for example, Apti Daftai was supposed to fight Lucas Brown mm. um, March 28th uh, right. as a replacement for Odo and Showtime. And he was in Detroit uh, training. And then, you know, after all the fights got canceled, he had to go home. So we had trouble finding him a flight back because uh, there was a, you know, a shortage and a scare uh, for some time. And finally, he got the the last plane going back to Russia. Wow, so he wow. could go back to his family. So, So there's obviously uh there were there were some logistical difficulties with this stuff you know and and really this is an international crisis all over the world all the fighters all the trainers uh everybody is is you know really quarantining their homes and training uh, to the best of their abilities and you know staying positive but uh this obviously you know uh has an effect on us uh we'll see how long this lasts but uh, you know i think that that uh uh, a lot of fighters and a lot of people in the in the business side of the sport, like myself, you know, just kind of, you know, looking at ways uh, to kind of uh, reinvent the, the wheel a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and figure out ways where, where where fighters and where the industry can still be in business and can still, you know, bring in some income uh, when when things like this happen. That's be this ever happens again. But you have Fantastic. obviously have to have to take uh, things like this into consideration. So one of the things that we did. You know, to keep a relationship between the fighters and the fans, and to make sure that that uh, you know the fighters and obviously everybody is equal, rich, poor, fighter, star athlete, whatever, everybody's the same. So the fighters have been doing uh, stay-at-home training videos. So Otto right. has released one, uh, Clarissa has released some, uh, and other, uh, other fighters as well. All fighters from different parts of the world united with their fans, and you know, it's, it's, it's and uh, gotten a lot of feedback on the social media, on the YouTube channel. Uh, you know, it's one of the ways for the fighters and for the fans to stay connected and, you know, sharing activities they could all do at the same time.
1: Yeah, at this day, obviously, you know, like you said, this is an attempt to sort of keep people engaged and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. At some point, obviously, you we hope to have, have fights again, but... Are you even bothering to make contingency plans or setting dates for future fights at this point? Or are you just waiting until there is a much better sense of when and where things may return to normal?
3: Well, you know, we are thinking things through and there there are several different ways this can play out. You know, obviously looking at the graphs and looking at the projections of what uh, different uh, organizations are putting forth in terms of when this is going to start coming down and which states are going to, Uh, come back to normal, you know, faster than, than others. Mm -hmm. So for example, we had Clarissa uh, scheduled to fight uh, Marie Kier May 9th in Flint, Uh, big events, you know, tickets were selling every day up until the day that we canceled the event, even during this pandemic, people, people were buying tickets, which was, you know, really just, she's such a big star at home. And at that point, you know, the, the virus hasn't really hit that Northern part of Michigan, but uh, uh, we've discussing things with the venue. We're discussing, Things with medical suppliers, you know, possibly if events go back, uh, you know, maybe everybody's going to have to need a mask and gloves and then some precautions are going to have to be taken into into consideration. Doing some research about venues that can that can function, that where we can have in-studio in style shows. Mm-hmm. Also possibly considering doing bigger venues where there can be space uh, mm-hmm. between people, meaning that people won't sit one next to each right. other, but there'll be some, some distancing. Uh, You know, so all of these different things are things to be taken into consideration. And, you know, hopefully a cure or vaccine comes comes to this uh, in the very near future Mm, and puts all of these all of these all of these plans to rest.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that you brought up Claressa and her bout with uh, Marie de Carre because uh, that that was uh, something that we wanted to ask you about uh, as one of the fights that. Will need to be rearranged. I mean, it's been frustrating for Clarissa in general lately with the, the Ivana Habazine fight going through a pair of postponements before eventually happening. Do you expect that uh, Decare will still be her, her next fight when things start returning to normal? And and what are the possible paths you're exploring for Clarissa beyond that?
3: Well, definitely. I mean, that, that we actually, you know, I'm in touch with Ivana Shea, who's the promoter of Decare. And he's very enthusiastic and, and, and excited about the fight. She's in Canada, which is close to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but obviously the borders have to be open for for something like this to happen. We actually had a press conference scheduled for the 16th of March. Uh, that was obviously, you know, uh, postponed uh, until further notice. Um, so, you know, uh, boxing has become an international sport. So a lot of the fighters, on the, you know, and certainly on the televised events, come from different countries. So even if things resume in the United States, the effect of the level of fights are going to the level of fights are going to be affected by the fact where fighters can travel from different parts of the world to participate in the events. Um, and and obviously Marie, you know Marie Marie is part of that part of that puzzle. Uh, but you know Clarissa, when I first started working with Clarissa, Clarissa always wanted to make the biggest fights and always wanted to find the best available fighters. And um, you know she's done that. Only with ten fights, a three division world champion, the biggest and best fight that we could have made for her now was against Marie Kerr, the IBF uh, junior middleweight champion. She's actually rated number one on box track at 154 pounds. Uh, big fight. I think one of the biggest fights uh, in women's boxing of the year. Uh, very excited about it. You know, and obviously, you know, a lot of folks have been talking about Clarissa versus Layla Ali, uh, and that's a very exciting possibility uh, if it can happen. Clarissa definitely wants it to happen, but it's really up to Layla, uh, to 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 really... Take, take this conversation to the next level and, and to make it realistic. But I think that that has the potential to be a really a monumental event. Right. Mm. Uh,
1: so as we mentioned at the top of this segment, we are also joined by uh, one of Dimitri's fighters, heavyweight contender, Otto Verlaine. So let's bring him in uh, now. Uh, Otto, thanks for your patience and thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thank you guys for having me.
1: So, Otto, you uh, have also had some challenges lately. Uh,
2: Your your first fight on Showtime ended after one round because of a cut. Your next scheduled fight fell through because the card was canceled. Then you had your fight with Tyson Fury where, you know, fights have been stopped for cuts that weren't nearly as bad as the one that Fury suffered in that fight, but they let the fight go on and you wound up with a loss. Uh, And then even before the coronavirus put everything on pause... You had to withdraw from your next scheduled bout on Showtime. Uh, And this is all before your personal situation with COVID-19. We we do want to talk about your experience with the virus in a moment. But first, just how frustrating has the past year or so been for you?
0: Uh, It's been very up and down. Even before the the first fight on Showtime, I was supposed to fight for the European title. And that fight was canceled. And then I had that fight on Showtime, only one round. Then I was going to fight BJ Flores. That fight was canceled. But then all of a sudden, I got the call to fight Tyson Fury. So then everything worked out good anyways. Right. Mm. But then that was a good fight. And I was going to fight Lucas Brown in March. And then I had an injury to my foot. So I had to withdraw from that. And I've been recovering here in New York and had my mom over and when she got back to Sweden, uh, we both started having symptoms of the virus.
1: Mm. Yeah, you, meant, you mentioned your mother. Uh, am I correct in understanding she has tested positive? And, and, how, and how difficult and uh, uh, emotionally has that been for you, not being able to be with her?
0: Um, no, she hasn't tested positive, but she was here, then she got back to Sweden. Okay. And at the same when she got back, both me and her started having symptoms. And okay. then after another four or five days, her boyfriend uh, got really sick because he's a diabetic, so he's in a risk group. Mm. So he had the same symptoms, has worse. And then he started having back pain, so he went to the hospital and got tested, okay. and he was positive. So he had to stay at the hospital for like five days. So Ugh. he was positive. So, yeah, most likely me and my mom too because we both lost a uh, sense of smell and taste. And she got she got more sick than I was because she, uh, she had a high fever and was very tired. For me, it was kind of light, but Mm. the most annoying was like the sense of smell and taste.
1: Mm. It must be very difficult being away from her. I mean, I mean, we all have to obviously be isolated from people. But, you know, knowing that your mother is unwell thousands of miles away can be easy.
0: No, of course. uh, But yeah, she I mean, we kept in touch every day and she seemed to be doing good anyway. She's a strong woman and, uh, you know, she... She never complains. Really, she had a high fever and stuff. She was tired, but she she was still in good spirits. So that was good to know, at least. But of course, you want to be with her when it happens. Yeah. Right.
4: yeah.
2: Can, can you can you walk us through a bit more some of the symptoms that you experienced and and how long uh, you you experienced them? You mentioned the the loss of, of taste and smell. Was were there other things going on that that felt a little off for you?
0: Yeah. So it first started. <clears throat> on a Sunday, and then I woke up. I had a little sore throat, and I had slept with my window open, so I felt so maybe that was just it. I thought, but then the same day I talked to my mom, and she started getting sick even the night before, and then hey, it got worse on that Sunday. So then we started uh, suspecting that it was the virus because she had she had just left New York, and so for me I had a little sore throat, uh, a light fever. Some coughing, not, not bad. Uh, I was sneezing a little bit. So overall, it wasn't that bad for me. And, but then I started getting better, started feeling good. And then all of a sudden, I lost all my sense of smell and taste.
4: Hmm.
0: So after like a three, or four days with a light fever and stuff, I got better like for a couple of days. And then I lost my sense of smell and taste. And that was gone for life. I got my taste back after five days, and then wow. another five days, I got my sense of smell back. Wow. Okay. And, and, and at this point, you don't,
2: you're not feeling any, any symptoms? You're, you're back to normal, or, or are there still some lingering
0: issues? No, right now I'm doing great. So okay. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm training here in my apartment, so I'm doing well.
1: The, uh, the mother of a friend of mine had the virus and had that same symptom, that loss of smell and taste, and she said it was weird like really strange like she could tell the temperature of food she could tell the texture of food but there was nothing else i mean it sounds like an incredibly strange uh, uh circumstance
0: yeah it was super weird like because at first i had uh i put some cologne on after i went to the shower and i couldn't smell it so i said, oh maybe something happened or whatever and then i had some food and i felt like something was off but i it didn't click right away so mm. it took me a few more hours, and then I had some more food, and I, I felt that I couldn't taste it. But it's funny because um, you know how it's supposed to taste. So I, right. <laughs> I think you, you kind of you taste it anyways for some reason. Because, like I said, you know, you know how it's supposed to taste. <laughs> and, so then I had to really check. So I, took, uh, I actually took some vodka. I took a sip of it, mm. and I felt a burn in my throat, but I couldn't feel any alcohol taste. Uh-huh. Mm. huh <laughs> bizarre yeah so yeah so i put that back and uh yeah then i figured that was what it was because my mom had had it already okay started she, she before for her right
1: okay uh, so you so you mentioned you know that you know past the symptoms and, and i'm very pleased to hear that for you um and that you you know you're sort of trying to stay in shape um, while you were in isolation, what are you what are you doing uh, to try and like stay in some kind of shape as you recover from from your bout with the virus?
0: Yeah, so when this first started, I didn't have any equipment at all at home, but now I bought a I bought a bike on Amazon, I bought some elastic bands, I borrowed uh, two dumbbells, one kettlebell from my manager Zach, and then actually yesterday I built uh, I went to Home Depot, got some wood and stuff, some screws. So I put together a platform that I'm gonna try tonight. Uh, use my bands with, and uh, I can do a, I can do a lot of stuff with what I have now. I can do some squatting, you know, uh, with the bands, and uh, I got the dumbbells, so it's working all right actually. And then I do some boxing, um, punching one of my walls in here, a uh, shadow boxing, and. I'm an elastic band too to do some shadow boxing. So, I'm I'm trying to do the best of the situation. All right, I'm trying to make okay. the best out of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I saw I saw your your train like a boxer video and saw you using some of those bands and 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 the weights and punching the wall. Uh D- Dimitri, um I, you know, you you mentioned this this train like a boxer uh uh video series that that you have up on YouTube. Um how did how did the idea come about? Was it was it your idea or was it something one of your fighters reached out saying they wanted to do? How did that all come together?
3: Well, you know, we were just thinking about ways to uh by the way, I just want to say one thing about Otto. When Otto hurt his foot, and people can see it on his social media, mm-hmm. even with the boot on, and like half of his foot was basically, he wasn't able to walk, but he still go to the boxing gym and hit the bag mm-hmm. and hit the pads, which was pretty amazing to see. So uh, Otto, Otto, you're definitely an inspirational <laughs> figure for people that want to get in shape. <laughs> <laughs>
0: thank you, thank uh,
3: you. Uh, so yeah, so we were just kind of thinking of ways uh, to kind of keep the connection between the fighters and the fans. And you know, one of the things that that everyone that everyone shares in this time is that everyone is stuck at home and no one can go to work. Um, uh, and obviously, it's important to try to stay healthy, to try to stay active. Uh, fighters are calling me about different fights, and I said, you know what, guys, just you know do the best you can do uh, at home training, you know. And then we just kind of figured out, well, maybe we can let the boxing fans know about what fighters are doing at home, and they can follow follow along, and, and that'll keep a relationship uh, with the fighters and the fans and uh, keep the communication going. Um, and, uh, you know, that's how that came about. Right.
2: Mm. Yeah. And, and watching the video Otto, I noticed, uh, as, as Dimitri said, your, your left foot was, was in the boot there. Uh, how, how close to fully recovered, uh, is, is your foot?
0: Uh, we got a few more weeks, but actually I'm out of the boot now. I, I okay. took it off on Friday. Okay. Uh, I Good. talked to the doctor and he allowed me to take it off. So now I'm walking normal, but I still have to be careful for a, a few more weeks. Gotcha. Mm.
3: You know, guys, and I, and I want to say Otto was really injured as well when he was at the uh, Wilder, Fury card, Wilder Fury fight because he was doing some work for a Swedish uh, broadcaster. But, you know, in that fight, you really see how amazing Otto's performance was. Right. Um, and, you know, numbers don't lie. CompuBox, Otto landed the most punches against Ice Fury than any of his opponents ever. Uh, you know, obviously Vladimir Klitschko, uh, uh, Deontay Wilder in the first fight. So Otto is really world class, and and you know hopefully uh, we get back to business in the near future. Um, and I really believe that that Otto is one of the best heavyweights in the world, uh, the best heavyweight in the world. And and uh, you know in due time is going to show it.
1: We should we should ask you while we have you, Otto. What were you surprised at what happened uh, between Wilder and Fury in the rematch, and and what were your thoughts as you watched that?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean I was saying before the fight in some interviews that I feel that somebody can come in and, and run Wilder over. And that's what Fury did. I wasn't sure that he was going to do that. He was saying that he was going to knock him out and stuff, but he usually says that, and then he comes yeah. out boxing anyway. But, so I was, I was a little surprised that he did it, but I knew it was possible. Uh, you can see the signs in Wilder's fight with Luis Ortiz, the second mm-hmm. fight, and a lot of fights. He's been losing on the cards, and then he, he's managed to knock the guy out. And, and uh, I don't know, Tyson, Tyson did a good job uh, beating Wilder, and he had a good game plan He showed that that he, the change of trainers really worked well for him.
1: Um, Dimitri, do you have any words of, of encouragement to, to, to fans who, who miss boxing right now? And you talked earlier about some of the different things you're looking at as possible ways for boxing to come back how do you think it is likely to come back do you think like you mentioned studio shows do you think that's the most likely scenario
3: um i think <clears throat> there may be some some uh, uh maybe crowds would have to be kept to a minimum um, no. but you know those that love boxing you know fortunately now there's uh, great networks like Showtime and boxing there's also the internet so right. five fans can can search for great fights going back you know to uh, ten tens, tens of years, fifty years, sixty years. Um, we have put a lot of our fights on our YouTube channel uh, you know and, and and training stuff from fighters uh, so that the fans can kind of stay engaged and, and and see things. But you know it's really unpredictable because again, you know boxing is an international sport, uh, really international these days. And fighters come to the United States from all over the world to train to fight. Um, And it's really important that the whole world heals so that, uh, uh, you know, so that so that things can go back to normal in a real way. But it's really, you know, an unpredictable environment, very tough to predict what's going to happen. I do think that uh, based on some of the figures seems to be that in certain states, things are kind of, uh, you know, uh, plateaued and are going down. So hopefully, you know, by early summer, uh, we'll be able to start planning things and going back to business. Mm. Right. Mm.
2: Uh, and as long as people are uh, watching uh, old fights on the internet we should r- remind everyone that uh, Dimitri Salida was a, was a fighter and his fights are out there too uh, if people are uh, looking for something to entertain themselves uh, I don't I don't know if you've gotten uh, bored enough Dimitri to go and rewatch all of your old fights yet but uh, that's always an option I guess
3: <laughs> talk to me baby, talk to me.
2: <laughs> all right, well, uh Otto, we'll give uh we'll give the final word to you uh, on this. I'm sure there are uh plenty of people out there who are feeling frustrated and who are who are questioning whether this social distancing is all worth it. As somebody who has had the virus or at least is pretty sure he's had the virus. Uh, what what advice would you like to share?
0: Yeah, I would like to share uh, I would like to say that it's very serious and people are dying. We had people from our gym here in New York die. And uh, just look at me, I I didn't have much symptoms, but then it spread to my my mother's boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And uh, he got very sick because he's a diabetic. So, I mean, some people might think, hey, it won't affect me, but yes, it won't affect you, but you can spread it to others, Mm. which can be in danger and can possibly die from it. So everybody needs to stay at home, it's very serious. But while you're staying at home, just yes, don't be on the couch. I mean, do something. Get up in the morning, make your bed, uh, cook some food. I mean, clean your apartment. If you can work from home, that's great. Just uh, yes, come up with ideas. And, yes, I mean, don't go to bed too late and get up late and just yes, do nothing because that will break you. You've got to use the time you have. now. Yeah, so A- absolutely try to stay sane. <laughs> exactly
1: yeah hey look that's great advice look Otto thank you very much indeed really really happy that you've recovered and uh Dimitri thank you very much for joining us and let's all look forward to a day when we're able to get past this and uh hopefully we will all be ringside for an Otto Valin heavyweight title fight in the not too distant future how about that
0: that's something to look forward to that sounds good well, but Dimitri mentioned sounds- the possibility of him fighting too <laughs> oh, right, then I'm coming to get
2: some with you, man. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. It was great talking to you both.
3: Thank okay, you so thank much. You.
2: Thank you. Thanks again to Dimitri and Otto. Great to get their insights on this extraordinarily abnormal time. Uh, and now we will take a trip back to a relatively normal time and look at a decidedly abnormal boxing card. On May 7th, 1994, at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Don King and Showtime's pay-per-view arm presented Revenge the Rematches, a four-fight televised card, four 12-round rematches, any of which could have headlined a normal boxing card. And the card featured three future Hall of Famers, not to mention two more Hall of Famers on the off-TV undercard as Ricardo Lopez defended his strawweight belt against Kerman Guardia, and Christy Martin fought to a six-round draw with Laura Serrano, an outstanding fighter herself who was making her pro debut. Uh, and. Also, Meldrick Taylor was on the off TV oh. portion of the card, as were Calvin Grove and
1: Giovanni Parisi. Oh. This was a stacked <laughs> card. Oh, wow, indeed. Uh, here were just, just the four televised fights um, Azuma Nelson, Jesse James Leha, two. Simon Brown, Terry Norris, two. Gerald McClellan, Julian Jackson, two. And in the main event, the rematch to the first defeat of Julio Cesar Chavez's magnificent career chavez frankie randall too there is so much to say about this card these fights these fighters but we could use a little help from someone who is actually covering boxing at the time and can place these fights in their proper context so joining us now is our showtime colleague and international boxing hall of famer steve farhood who was the editor-in-chief of both the ring and ko magazines when this card took place in 1994 steve thanks so much for joining us
4: Thank you very much for having me, and uh, it's great to be able to talk boxing again.
1: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Hey, and look, before we start talking uh, Revenge, the rematches, uh, as we've been doing with all our guests lately, let's have a quick personal check-in. Um, you live in Manhattan, a tough place to be right now. Uh, how are you and your wife holding up in the middle of all of this? Well, we're still married, so that's good. <laughs> okay, um. <laughs> let's start. From from what I hear, divorce lawyers are doing
4: uh, a big business these days. But no, we're we're okay. Uh, binging on Breaking Bad, and uh, you know, my wife has reintroduced herself to the kitchen after a three-decade miss. Um, and um, we're doing the best we can. You know, just trying to trying to stay uh, clean and healthy, and uh, hoping everybody else is too. But we're taking it very seriously, as we have to in New York City, because uh, you know, it's funny where I live is. Talk about the epicenter of the virus. Where I live, there were probably six hospitals within half a mile of where I live. So as if we need further reminder of what's going on, I have that, you know, and we all know what's going on at the hospital. So it's very sobering and uh, something that we're taking, especially at our age, because we're both over 60, taking very seriously.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you yeah.
2: you said a lot of uh, you you touched on a lot of important things there, but I know Kieran is cringing because he knows I'm I'm about to do this uh, because I am uh, the ultimate go. Breaking Bad super fan. So uh, you you mentioning it, I'm just curious. Is this your first time watching the series? You're you're just getting around to it.
4: First time. You know, I had hip replacement surgery about three years ago, and and I bought the whole set thinking, okay, you know, gonna have hip replacement, I'm not gonna be able to move. This will be a good time to watch. Well, we never watch and now this comes up an unfortunate reason to watch right. but um i have to say that you know at first i was a little turned off you know everything we've watched you know binge whether it's binge watching watching movies everything seems negative you know <laughs> <laughs> right and this is not the time where you want more negative on top of negative but right. uh, breaking bad initially didn't didn't really capture me but now we we just finished season three and uh now now we're very into it okay. so season three is crazy yeah. yeah. All right. No, well, Kieran the hasn't thing. watched.
2: Kieran, Kieran hasn't watched yet. I'm emphasizing the yet. I'm. Uh, eventually, I will twist his arm fully on that. So we won't give any spoilers. But uh, when when you're all done watching, you'll have to give me a call, and uh, you can uh, give me your your thoughts on the series.
4: Yeah, because I'm not a TV guy. I mean, I watch boxing on television, and I watch sports on television, and that's right. pretty much it. Now, now I'm not even watching news anymore because it's too damn depressing. I so watching you. Breaking Bad is a big step for me. You know? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right,
2: so let's turn our attention then to to some boxing, and uh, we, we'll, we'll go through the fights on the card one by one. But first, I'm curious for your recollection from back at the time on how— Big the buzz was for this card. You know, it's now held in the highest esteem and referenced anytime anyone wants to talk about what a deep pay-per-view card looks like. But at the time, was this not that abnormal in terms of Don King or other promoters stacking cards? Or was this indeed a shocking amount of, of well-matched talent
4: to put on a single card? Promoters and TV networks have done a lot of, a lot of studies about pay-per-view habits, uh, consumer habits. And what they learned a long time ago was and the main event sells the show. If you have a good main event, you're going to do a, you're going to do good business. Um as a result, and especially I think in recent years, we've seen, you know, a lot of pay-per-view shows where you know the the first fight on TV isn't so great, maybe it's, you know, ESPN Friday Night Level or a showbox level, and you know, people are paying a lot of money. So in those days, 90s, mainly because Don King ran a lot of the pay-per-views, certainly all well, the showtime pay-per-views, the cards were stacked. And, and, you know, if you want to give Don credit for it's great. But the real reason King's undercards of pay-per-view card fights were always stacked is because Don didn't run a lot of shows normally. Mm-hmm. So when he did run shows, he had fighters on the contract who needed X amount of fights each year. Mm-hmm. So he had to put his big names. He had to put Azuma and Chavez and whoever it was, McClellan and Julian Jackson together just to get them the fights they needed as a result what we got was not only good main events with tyson and you know and chavez but great undercards so this was not that unusual for for this particular time period
1: okay mm. all right let's 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 go through the fights in the order in which they happened on the card and uh, we start with the opener and yeah you said you know sometimes pay-per-view cards may be espn friday night level but the opener uh, The opener for this was really Showtime Championship Boxing main event level. Um, Azuma Nelson, Jesse James Lehar, too. uh, They have fought to a draw eight months earlier on the Whitaker Chavez card. There's a lot of draws going on that night. Um, In the rematch, uh, Lehar ended Nelson's six-year reign as super featherweight champ in his 10th defense. Uh, Lehar fighting maybe the best fight of his career, winning a unanimous decision by scores of 117-110, 117-109, and a much closer 114 One thirteen, Steve, what stood out to you watching it back? And was this more about Leha fighting brilliantly, or was this signs that Azuma Nelson was starting to get a little bit old at 35?
4: Well, certainly both, Kieran. I mean, uh, Leha never fought better, as you said. He was just brilliant, boxing beautifully. You know, the first fight was kind of uneventful. Um, Nelson rallied over the last three rounds to to get a draw. and I think that that he was getting older. You know, he was I think 35 at the time of the rematch. And one thing, just to, to digress for a minute, one of the things that that makes this card remarkable when you have a card with Chavez, Terry Norris, Nelson. These are all pound for pound guys. Yeah. You know, Nelson, as you said, had a long reign and that ended this night, and uh, he was certainly one of the top ten fighters in the world at the time, two division champion, featherweight and junior lightweight. So, um, but what really stuck out is is Sometimes in in a couple of these fights on this card, what happens in the very beginning of fights can really dictate the rest of the show. And Mm -hmm. in this fight, Nelson got knocked down in the second round. And James Lehigh, as good a boxer as he was, was not a big puncher. And that kind of dictated the rest of the card. You know, and then uh, and Nelson fell further and further behind, and, and the card, the the score with one fourteen, one thirteen for Leha was ridiculous. I mean, yeah. Leha won this fight easily, but he was he was brilliant. He just he was brilliant defensively. He fought the right right fight. He drew Nelson to him, and took full advantage of Nelson's aggressiveness, and and won convincingly. Really, very impressive performance. Mm.
2: Yeah, and I agree with uh, the, the way that you saw it score-wise that I had at 117-109. I thought that close card was was way off the mark. Um, but th- this wasn't the last time that these guys uh, fought. Nelson uh, came back from this defeat and stopped Leha uh, in, in their third fight in, in 96. Uh, and then they even fought right. a fourth time with, uh, with Leha winning a decision uh, over a then 39-year-old Nelson. And so Azuma's in the Hall of Fame. Leha is not and I don't think he's even been on the ballot. Um a couple of decades after his prime, would you say Steve is Jesse James Leha maybe
4: a little underappreciated now? You know, I think he he he's the victim of some I don't want to say questionable matchmaking because you want to make the money when you're fighting. But you know, he fought Azuma four times. He fought Oscar. He fought Shane. I mean, this guy just didn't get any breaks. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 I think losing to great fighters you know, how do you how do you measure a fighter's worth when, when he's a world champion as Lehigh was, but lost the biggest fights of his life to guys like Mosley and De That that's that's difficult to do. He that he did well with Nelson, I think speaks volumes. And and from Nelson's perspective, he was older, as we said. Four I'm looking at his record right now, four of his last seven fights were against James Lehigh which is kind of odd. <laughs> and also, <laughs> yeah. if you saw the rematch that we're talking about and you saw Leha dominate, you say, how the hell did Nelson and even older Nelson knock Leha out, right. or stop him at least, in the third fight? So, uh, you know, that's why rematches are so interesting. There's, there's a 50% chance that you're going to get a similar fight to the fight <laughs> before, and a 50% chance it's going to be totally different. And in the case of these four fights, a lot of them were totally different from the originals. Yeah, and one thing
2: that, that jumped out at me watching this was just that these two fighters were so technically sound. I had, I had a little sense of that, you know, they don't make them like that anymore watching, watching this fight back. I'm not sure if you uh, felt the same way at all, Steve.
4: Yeah, the techn- beautiful technical fighters and, and somewhat surprising, I think, the, the result. Because the first fight was a draw. And if don't forget that Nelson fought terribly against Jeff Fennick in their first fight, was very lucky to get a draw and uh, and then fought in the rematch in Australia and kicked Fennec's butt. So I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, the old Joe Lewis fights better the second time around theory was going to be in place here, and, and, and Nelson was going to be later, but of course he didn't. So that's, right. uh, that's why we watch the fights. You never know. <laughs> exactly. You can't be sure with rematches. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of
2: uh, how you never quite know what to expect with a rematch, let's move on to the second fight on the card, Terry Norris, Simon Brown, too. This was a case where the rematch looked nothing like the original. When they fought the first time five months earlier, Brown scored a huge upset, hurting the favored but chinny Norris with almost everything he landed and stopping him in four rounds. In the rematch, Norris was smarter and boxed more, and he won going away by scores of 116, 112, 117, 111, and 119, 119. Nine, uh, Bobby Chaz said of Norris during the broadcast: "If his chin was only as good as his heart is big, he would be unbeatable." I- is that an accurate description of-, of Terry Norris? Great fighter,
4: lousy chin. Yeah, I think Bobby nailed it because the first uh, the first fight with Simon Brown in the very first round, Brown lands a jab and puts Norris on his butt, and Norris got yeah. hurt again in the second round, got hurt again in the third round. We all know, you know, the first title fight. Terry Norris ever had was against Julian Jackson. Lord knows anybody could get knocked out by Julian Jackson, but Norris got knocked out in the second round of a fight that he probably should have won. So that was the case with Norris. Norris was third in the pound-for-pound rankings, so he was, he was considered, you know, fantastic and had made a lot of defenses. Uh, uh, the, uh, the first uh, fight with Brown was the 11th defense of his, of his title at 154 pounds. So we're talking about a guy that was considered, you know, up there with the best fighters in the world. So it was, it was a pretty shocking result, the first fight. And then the second fight was almost equally shocking because no one thought Norris would have the patience and, and the subtle skills to, to fight the way he fought in fighting a careful fight. Uh, he didn't care. He did the right thing to get his title back, and he did.
1: right.
2: Mm. Um, and I'll I'll just throw a quick comp at you, Steve, um, that uh, the, maybe the current equivalent of Terry Norris, you know, a poor man's version, in that this guy is not headed to the Hall of Fame, I don't think, but still pretty close in terms of of talent and chin, is Amir Khan? What, what do you think? Is that a decent comp for for younger fans who who miss Norris's career?
4: Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, Amir Khan's probably suffered a couple more knockouts than Norris had, but I like that very much. And and you know, it wasn't long after the the loss to they the win over Brown, that, that Norris sort of started winning and losing in equal amounts and then, mm. you know, kind of lost his, yeah, he had that ugly scene with Santana where they fought three times yeah. with all the disqualifications right. and, the, and the Oscar acting and, and all that stuff. So his career got kind of jumbled toward the end. But at his best, he was he was fantastic. And, you yeah, know, he did have that chin problem. Because let's remember Simon Brown knocking him down and hurting him so much in the first fight. Brown
1: was the welterweight and Norris was the mm. 154 pounder. So Brown was a naturally smaller guy. What else jumps out at you, if anything, watching this this rematch? I mean, it's hot. It's hard to believe watching this this fight that Brown beat Norris the first time. Uh, Was that first win kind of a fluke? Was it one of those things where once he hurt him with that jab in the first round, that everything kind of fell apart? Uh, I mean, how did Brown actually manage to pull off that win in the first place?
4: Well, Norris fought a really stupid fight. I mean, he really (laughs) did. He got dropped in the first round. He got dropped in the second round. He got hurt in the third round. Every time he got dropped, he got up and approached Brown like he wanted to brawl with him. And most of the fight was fought on the inside. And Norris had a lot of success offensively, but at what cost? You know, he got hit a lot, and he eventually stopped. So he just didn't fight smart. And being the naturally bigger guy, who probably was also the faster guy with a better defense, um, he, he fought the right fight the second time. And and, and somebody wisened him up and said, Terry, right. you know, <laughs> you don't have to be Mr. Exciting. Just, just win this fight. And, you know, uh, Anthony Joshua did. With Andy Ruiz the second fight you know just right. get the
1: win worry about it looking good or being exciting next time yeah yeah well the next fight was definitely exciting this is the fight for which our discussion is sure to last longer than the fight itself uh Gerald McClellan Julian Jackson too uh, it's rare to see two punches of this caliber square off against each other uh, the first time it was close through four rounds and then McClellan just obliterated Jackson in the fifth but in the rematch all over in one minute and 23 seconds. Um, McClellan hurting the Hawk with a one, two seconds into the fight, and he never recovered. Um, A knockdown rule by Joe Cortez when the ropes held Jackson up, and then he was knocked out soon after. Um, On the replay, it looked as if it was a right hand to the body that was a finishing punch. Um, Is that how you saw it? And and, and did these fights suggest that out of these two mammoth punches, McClellan was the more mammoth puncher, or was this just the case of Gerald being in his prime and Julian wasn't?
4: I think a combination of, and also the fact that Jackson, while a tremendous puncher at middleweight, remember he was a junior middleweight before that, probably mm-hmm. at his best as a puncher at junior middleweight, and McClellan was a bigger guy, but um, I, I think that looking at it you know, with, with all these years of perspective, we tend to think of Gerald McClellan because of his, the state he's in today, and right. because of that fight with Nigel Benn, which, let's face it, was an amazing fight. Forget William Jackson twice and beat him twice and beat Jackson when Jackson was maybe the most feared puncher in boxing. So, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty amazing results from McClellan. And I think he does not get enough credit for winning the title against Jackson and then beating him so easily in this, the second time as he should, you know, yeah. we just tend to think of him in a different way, but the fight that again, a fight, this fight is not a pre- this matchup is not appreciated as much as it should have been. And I just jotted down a couple of stats, McClellan, 27 wins, 25 KOs going into the first fight. Jackson, 46 wins, 43 KOs. And that, that's, you know, that, that's headline-making stuff. And it reminds <laughs> yeah. me of Zarate and Zamora at Bantamweight mm. when they had all those ridiculous numbers for knockouts. But you, you, you would have trouble coming up with too many other matchups at any weight at any time where you had two punchers with those kind of stats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's
2: staggering. Yeah. It's like uh, for mo- uh, in mo- modern day, it would be like Deontay Wilder versus Deontay Wilder, basically.
4: <laughs> exactly right. You just don't get numbers like this that often. And, and, you know, they they didn't disappoint because, you know, both fights obviously ended in knockouts. Yeah. All right. Let, let's
2: get to the main event. Uh, Julio Cesar Chavez, Frankie Randall, too. Um, before we even get into discussing the rematch, though, uh, when they met the first time, uh, just over three months earlier, Randall was a 15-1 to underdog, and he beat Chavez by split decision, ending Chavez's unbeaten streak at 90 fights. How stunning was that upset in the moment, Steve?
4: It was huge. I I look back at the ratings, which I compiled at the time in the ring and and, and KO, and Chavez was number... He was making his 14th defense, and he was number two in the world pound-for-pound, only because he had gotten that draw with Whitaker, which he didn't deserve, so he was second to Whitaker in the pound-for-pound ratings. And Randall... Number one WBC, 140 pounder, unrated by the ring. Hmm. So Frankie Randall, with the exception of a win over, I think it was Edwin Rosario, or a somewhat faded Edwin Rosario, had really had no credentials. So you you can't you can't overstate what kind of upset this was. It was gi- absolutely gigantic, despite the fact that Randall went in with a tremendous record, forty eight two and one. I mean that's pretty awesome. Right. But again, Chavez he was looking for his ninetieth uh, straight win, pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, And in the rematch, you know, Randall had a lot of success, showing that the first fight really wasn't a fluke. He was either a bad style matchup for Chavez or Chavez was aging quickly or both. Um, The fight ending controversially with a head clash, opening a cut on Chavez right at the end of round eight. Randall lost the point according to some stupid WBC rules um, because he had. Which is still in effect, by the way, right? That rule is still in effect. It's absurd. Um, But anyway, that helped Chavez win a technical split decision and arguably even without that help you know or with it uh, chavez still shouldn't have gotten that decision but he did 77 74 76 75 the third judge had randall up 76 75 how did you score it this time around um do you believe that randall was chavez's ken norton or were we looking at chavez you know he controversially drew with whitaker and then he had these two fights with randall was this just a sign that it was getting toward the end for chavez
4: I think it was a sign getting toward the end. I mean, you know, when he fought Whitaker, you can make an excuse for Chavez in that fight in that clearly he lost. I think he lost, you know, one-sidedly. But the fight was at welterweight. And Chavez, we, we remember Chavez coming into play as a 130-pounder. When he fought Whitaker, he was a 147-pounder, not a particularly tall guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of what he had as an advantage over smaller guys was gone by the time he fought at 147. And to a degree, also at 140. You know uh, he was he was he was only thirty one but he had a lot of fights, i mean ninety yeah. fights that's a lot of fights so i I think Randall got him at the right time, and you know, watching Randall in both fights, fighting so well, boxing so well. Reminded me a little bit of Buster Douglas against Tyson, you know, this guy who really didn't give you anything to think that he could do something like this. And here he was just boxing absolutely beautifully, dropping Chavez in the first fight. It's sort of similar to what Buster Douglas did. Uh, I I did score it watching it on on YouTube again, Um, and I thought Randall probably deserved the rematch decision, maybe by a point, but it was very, very Mm. close, Mm. very, very close fight.
2: Yeah. Okay. I, I I didn't even have it quite a, as close. Uh, watching it this time around, I had Randall up uh, six to two, minus a point, of course. Uh, but wow. you know, okay. I, but but I admit it certainly could have been like five to three, or maybe even four to four, where Chavez gets it by a point. Um, is there any reason do you think, Steve, to go conspiracy theorist here and suggest that Chavez's team knew the scores and that's why they were so quick to encourage Flip Homansky to stop the fight?
4: Well, you know, it, it was interesting watching it again. Uh, um in boxing that that that's quite possible, but what was interesting about it is Homansky said in the interview that he would have let the fight go on a little bit right. longer had Chavez said that he could see or wanted to continue mm-hmm. i've always been of the impression, and Flip flip Homansky's a, a great boxing guy and a great doctor um but i've always been of, of, of the impression you don 't ask a fighter if he can see or can't see you judge by what you see him do in the ring and yeah. you make your decision on whether he can continue or not because otherwise it's too it's too easy to to Easy to manipulate the rules, which is exactly what happened in that fight. So I, I didn't like when Hamansky said what he said as for an excuse to stopping the fight. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, you know, very, very close fight. And uh, I don't know. I was, you know, Chavez was human and, and Randall <laughs> showed it. And, you know, that, that we weren't used to seeing Chavez be human.
2: Yeah. yeah, so so human, in fact, that even Emanuel Stewart, who so famously helped great fighters reinvent themselves and and reverse defeats, uh, couldn't couldn't really do a whole lot for Chavez. I guess at this stage of his career, at least based on the evidence of this fight.
4: Exactly right, and 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 you know, you talk about the scoring and maybe it was manipulated, whatever. In the second fight, I think a bigger question is given what happened with Whitaker and Chavez in San Antonio, a fight I was at. Um, it's kind of a miracle that Randall won the first fight at all. You know, the <laughs> yes. fight did go the distance. Right. I mean, what would you have bet on that Randall would get a decision? Like, clearly he deserved the decision, but uh the fact that he actually got it, uh, is pretty amazing. So, uh, you know, maybe it was uh maybe it was payback, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> All
2: right, well, a, a final question to, to wrap up, just looking at the whole card. Um, and you talked about how uh, to have a card similarly deep uh, wasn't uh, wasn't so unusual at the time because of uh, Don King's situation. But still, is this the best or, or at least the deepest boxing card of the entire pay-per-view era? And, and if not, can you think of something else you might rank above it?
4: Well, you know, I gave it a little bit of thought, did a little bit of research on it. I, I can't really say anything was better. Mm-hmm. Um, because of balance, the balance of the card, you know, you, you, got, you take your number four fight, whichever one you pick as number four. And that's a, that's a main event on, on HBO or Showtime at any point. Um, there have been a lot of good pay-per-views where the, the second fight has been fantastic. You know, King mm-hmm. had Simon Brown and Maurice Blocker fighting each other on Tyson Ruddick uh, one. He had Nelson and Fennec fighting on Tyson Ruddick two. He had, uh, And then on a different card, much more recently on Showtime, you had Danny Garcia-Lucas Matisse
2: yep. underneath
4: Mayweather Canelo, which nice. was a tremendous main event and, and a tremendous second fight. So you can find great second fights, but I think if you're going to pick a card with four great fights... It's going to be almost impossible to top the the revenge card.
1: Yeah. Steve, look, thanks so much. I'm glad we've been able to give you at least a little bit of purpose and focus (laughs) for a few days, give you a reason to watch and research fights uh, until everything comes back to normal. So um, thanks a lot for doing that, and thanks for joining us. Um, We will talk to you soon, and hopefully we'll all be ringside again sometime in the not-too-distant future. That would be great, because the new normal sucks.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. All right, guys. (laughs) Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks so very much. Thanks for having me. Stay in touch and stay well. You too. You
2: too. All right. We hope you enjoyed our look back at the Revenge, the Rematches card. It was fun to escape to 1994 for a bit (laughs) there. Uh, But now here we are back in 2020 and we have some news to cover. And I'll say up front. It's actually not as unanimously terrible as the previous couple of weeks, uh, though certainly some of it is depressing. Let's start with follow-ups on two stories we touched on last time. The DAZN furloughs are official. Lance Pugmire of The Athletic reporting that the live events team is all furloughed for three months until early July But they will receive half pay and full medical benefits during this time. So it's bad news, but it could have been worse. Um, And this means DAZN is acknowledging it won't be airing any live fights until July. The Japan Boxing Commission isn't willing to go quite that far. But after we reported last week, they'd postponed all fights through mid-May. Now they've pushed that back to the end of May. Uh, Kieran, anything to say about either of these
1: updates? I mean, I guess neither is particularly surprising. Uh, The Japan news, I guess, is encouraging in a sense, in that it shows that sanity is prevailing there. Um, but it's perhaps slightly discouraging, In that it's perhaps an acknowledgement of the fact that, and I think we talked about this last week, having previously appeared to have dodged the bullet somewhat, it looks as if Japan is now starting to have to reckon with the fact that coronavirus may be getting a bit of a toehold there. Mm-hmm. Um, so things not quite as rosy as, as some Japanese authorities had hoped they would be. Uh, the DAZN situation, not a surprise. Uh, hard to see they have any alternative. I mean, it's a live streaming network without anything to live stream. Um, yeah. Obviously, look, we both have friends there and obviously for their sake, if nothing else, we hope that this proves temporary uh, and zone like boxing and sport more generally, is able to rebound when this fog sort of clears. Yeah. Uh... One other piece of negative news to cover this week. It is very negative indeed. Angelo Rottoli, an Italian cruiserweight who challenged Carlos de Leon for a belt in 1987, finished his career with a record of 29 wins, three defeats, and two draws, has died at the age of 61 due to the COVID 19 virus. Uh, very sad news there. Um, but there is actually a bit of bright news on the boxes battling COVID 19 front, uh, as it has been reported. The former heavyweight contender, Eric Jefferson, is out of the ICU and hopefully on the road to recovery. I think he may have been the first boxer we mentioned to have been affected by the virus. Um, so uh, certainly I think he was in that first episode. Yes, so yeah. so massively uplifting that, that he is, if he is indeed improving, uh, from what I can tell the prognosis for those who enter ICU with the virus, especially those who end up being intubated, is not generally super promising. Um, so that's fantastic news indeed, if if he is indeed uh, on the road to recovery.
2: Absolutely. And and if you saw the way his fight with Mo Harris ended, you knew Jefferson <laughs> yeah. wasn't going down yeah. easy. So uh,
1: right. that's
2: good. Um, and, and that's not the last of the positive news. Uh, we end on another encouraging note, as quite a few boxers and former boxers are stepping up to combat this coronavirus situation. First, we had Orlando Salido, a deputy in the Sonora, Mexico State Legislature since 2018, announced he would donate his salary to help local families in need. That was followed by Eric Morales, also an elected official in Mexico. He's a representative in Tijuana, announcing he'll donate his next three months salary to be used on groceries for communities in need. And lastly, Kubrat Pulev, whenever he gets his fight with Anthony Joshua, announced he will donate half his purse to help medical workers. Uh, Am I a sucker, Kieran, for feeling a little hope for humanity upon
1: reading all this news? You know what? Life sucks. Life, life, life sucks at the best of times, but it sucks a lot at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm just gonna grab hold of any morsel sort of good news and hug it tight right now. So uh, no, I'm with you there. Um, uh, you know, it's often said that you know situations like this bring out the best in people, and I don't know that that's entirely true. I think it actually shows. You know, selfish assholes are as even more selfish and assholery when the chips are down. But in this particular instance, I think this is a side it is bringing out the good in people. Congratulations to all three of those. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you there. Okay, that will do it for this week's podcast. Uh, thanks again to our guests, Dimitri Salida, Otto Wallin, and Steve Farhood. Uh, a Showtime programming note. Fridays in April at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, Showtime is airing some classic fights. On April 17th, it's Paulie Ayala, Johnny Tapia, 1 and 2. Oh, that was great. Um, on April 24th, it's John Molina Night uh, versus Lucas Matisse, woof, and Mickey Bay. Uh, and if you missed this past Friday, uh, Showtime aired Diego Corrales, Jose Luis Castilla, 1 and 2. And that fight remains available on demand which leads us into next week's podcast our look back at Cinco de Mayo showdown continues with arguably the greatest action fight in boxing history Corrales Castillo 1, May 7th 2005 oh yes no more needs to be said but more will be said uh until next time thanks very much for listening be safe be kind and be well